Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Quirky Science Podcast. Uh, Today, we have a friend that I've met through the Intercollegiate Psychedelics Network, and uh, he is studying um, traumatic brain injury and the possibility that drugs like ketamine and psychedelics and maybe even things like salvia could be useful for... um, potentially different phases of traumatic brain injury and things like that. So we're basically going to cover some of the science of that and potentially some other interesting topics as well. Um, Hi, welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss... Crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. introducing you victor could you um could you introduce yourself a little bit yeah yeah thanks uh so my name is victor pablo acero i'm studying bio and i'm studying uh in in the uh, bioengineering department at the university of pennsylvania i'm getting my phd i'm currently like entering my fourth year uh the lab that i'm working at is called the cullen lab it broadly focuses on translational uh tissue engineering solutions, uh, tissue innervation uh, solutions, uh, peripheral nerve injury and traumatic brain injury. Um, The work that I'm specifically uh, doing for my thesis is actually the development of an in vitro aspect of hippocampal neural networks um, using some of the tissue engineering techniques in our lab. Uh, and then using that test bed to explore and ask different uh, questions, uh, which, based on my interest, are going to be questions revolving around the mechanisms of action for psychedelic compounds, seeing if this test bed can help discriminate uh, between very similar psychedelic compounds and like find uh, quantitative differences in their effects on, on these sorts of uh, on this uh, these sorts of uh, networks. Um, but uh, because my lab has such an expert like such a expertise in traumatic brain injury. It's something that nonetheless I'm very exposed to and uh, I'm very familiar with and do a lot of reading on. Uh, and there are like, uh, there's some work that I'm doing like on the side with traumatic brain injury. So that's kind of my background in this lab and uh, as a grad student. Thank you. So I think where we could start. Hmm. So I kind of briefly looked over these notes that you put. I don't know if this is a specific order that you think we should follow for the topics. Um, what do you yeah. think? I think we can just go, we can, we can move down the list and if, you know, just kind of, you know, if, you, if there's something you want me to like stick on longer or like you want to jump to something else that you think just makes like sense with the flow, then I'm happy to do that. Okay. Sounds good. 
So I guess let's start with what do you think about the state of psychedelic research right now? Yeah, so I think psychedelic research right now is still greatly in its infancy. I think that because of the all the developments that are going on right now and the clinical trial successes that are going on, people kind of feel like it's it's really kind of like the dust is settling, so to speak. But I think that it's uh, only just really beginning to, to be explored, um, especially in the sense that most of the research and most of the clinical trials, if not like the vast, like vast majority of the clinical trials have been focused on the treatment of psychological disorders, less so physiological disorders. Um, but there, and there is research, like some early uh, preclinical studies, um, in vitro and in vivo work, uh, showing that there is some potential for psychedelics, uh, as therapeutics for non-psychological disorders, like things that have a more, um, immune, uh, basis like asthma, um, or IBS. Uh, there's some reasons to suspect that, it, uh, psychedelics would be beneficial for cluster headaches, migraines, you know, so there is a lot of non-psychological disorder, uh, or, uh, there's a lot of non-psychological disorders that psychedelics have really not been looked at that, uh, thoroughly. And, uh, I think with the development of these non-psychoactive, um, analogs of psych of, uh, common psychedelic compounds, I think that we'll be able to start exploring this stuff a lot more. Cause I think that's definitely been, uh, at least partially a barrier to that is that, not everybody wants to have a full-blown psych psychedelic experience if they're just taking, you know, psychedelics for a cluster headache or for asthma. And so having these available, uh, I think, is going to really advance the, the research we're doing in these other directions. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, that there is this focus on uh, psychological disorders and not so much physiological disorders. Uh, there is definitely... Uh, evidence of different, uh, like, physiological effects, like, especially uh, things like, I've read some stuff about immune system effects. Um, mm -hmm. Something that I, so I know that it's brought up often that, uh, that like, the serotonergic psychedelics are anti-inflammatory. And uh, something I would be curious about that, uh, and I bring this up because I think a lot of people, uh, they sort of, uh, I think everyone just kind of decides that that their only effect might be anti-inflammatory or that the immune system effects might always be good or something like that. And uh, so I, I think that it's possible that some of those things are dose-dependent. Like, this is really a random point, but immediately I was just thinking of this because... Um, I don't know, the, the whole, like, the fact that these things are so new, newly being studied, um, and they're kind of rising up the same way that cannabis did, and I think that there's going to be, like, this, this tendency to politicize and make uh, the drugs seem just, like, just super fantastic for everything that they do, you know? <laughs> and I think certain things they might do really well, um, but I do think that there's going to be a lot of like studies that come out at first that make it seem like this, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, a just like a cure all type thing, you know? Yeah. Um, a panacea. Yeah. Sure. A panacea. 
And uh, like, so I know that some of the effects of like psilocybin on things like neurogenesis, they're actually, they actually seem to be dose dependent where the high doses might actually shut down neurogenesis. And um, mm. I never hear that being talked about. <laughs> so like, it's kind of interesting. Um, but I think that that could be the case for something like the anti-inflammatory effects too. But I don't know that there's any like evidence of that. Um, yeah, I I personally haven't seen. Um, I can't think of like a study that's been shown that uh, has shown like a dose dependent effect where like at certain higher doses it actually becomes like like somehow like uh, pro inflammatory. But I do know that there have been some studies like I think showing like greater doses. Um, I can't remember what the outcome measures of this study was, but there were some deleterious effects of like really high doses of like some. Um, I think it was DOI, like really high dose of DOI in vitro, like showing some like del- like non non ideal effects. Um, and so, yeah, I and I, I definitely think there is some dose dependency to this. Um, exactly like what that U curve looks like, I think it's probably going to vary, like depending on the compound, depending on like the like what outcome measure we're looking at, um, and like the context for that outcome measure as well. So like the anti-inflammatory like u-shaped curve for like an, uh, a normal person versus somebody with like a uh a, some like elevated state of chronic inflammation is probably going to be, be very different so i think psychedelic medicine is you know in the same way that it's very personalized for the uh, psychological application i think um in a lot of ways it also have to be very personalized for the uh physiological applications but uh Time will have to tell. I think we, we definitely, you know, it's a, it's a lot of uh, postulation um, since this is all, like, so early right now in, 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 a, uh, in its infancy for, like, these sorts of, like, uh, properties. Yes. So how about you tell me a little bit about, uh, that was, like, already, like, the first, uh, that felt like a tangent, all this stuff, but... Um, <laughs> So what do you think, but more in a general topic, what do you think about, or what got you interested in traumatic brain injury, and what do you think about psychedelics helping in traumatic brain injury? Yeah, so initially I, I became interested in psychedelics uh, be, like while I was already in this lab. Uh, my discovering psychedelics as something that was surrounded by had a bunch of literature and people were studying it and working with it. I wasn't aware of that until I was already in this lab and had already committed to uh, the program. So when I, and so I, I got exposed to traumatic brain injury, learned a lot about traumatic brain injury. And then as I was just doing some reading uh, about like different psychedelic research and stuff, I think I found a paper called psychedelics and biomedicine. That was a paper that started to talk a little bit about the anti some of the work with uh, psychedelics being anti-inflammatory uh, went down that rabbit hole a little bit. And upon learning more about these, the, the in vitro and in vivo work showing its anti-inflammatory effects, uh, I started to get excited. I thought that this would be very relevant for traumatic brain injury because traumatic brain injury is uh, largely a disorder you could think of as an inflammatory disorder, a chronic inflammatory disorder. And there really isn't any treatment for TBI. So all you can really do is just provide like cognitive, like, uh, you know, monitor for any like ad- adverse side, like things like, like, ha- like stroke, you know, um, but 
there's really no treatment for TBI. And so reading about this stuff got me excited thinking, oh, what if this is something that actually would be useful in a TBI context? Uh, just off the anti-inflammatory effects before I really like got into learning a lot more potential reasons why they could be beneficial. Uh, that's what kind of started me down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I think given the fact that there is no treatments for TBI right now, like I think in the last 30 or so years, there's been like 40 uh, different drugs that have failed in phase two or three clinical trials. So um, yeah, it's something that just has not been any effective treatments for. Uh, and so I, I, I hope that something like psychedelics can, um, can really uh, have a, a role here. Um, and like, as I talk more about this, I'll, I'll also mention kind of like why I don't think that we've had success um, with developing pharmaceutical treatments for TBI. But first, it's probably better if I kind of like talk about like what traumatic brain injury is, since it's something that uh, the audience probably doesn't know too much about. Um, but yeah, so like TBI is something that you can break up into an acute event called like the acute injury or the primary injury that can be usually something like focal, like you get hit by a bullet or like a brick falls on your head. Uh, that's a focal injury. Um, the other type of injury that you'll have, you know, is a rotational injury. That is, um, it's a diffuse injury where the force is not concentrated onto like one specific area. And on like a focal injury, you're not going to have a cracked skull. You're not going to have this like acute uh, destruction of tissue. Um, it's not very easy to de detect a diffuse traumatic brain injury, which it makes it like a lot more uh, challenging to diagnose and to tr uh, even like imagine treating. Uh, you can barely even like use MRI or CAT scans to even determine like the extent of injury and predict like how severe is it, what are the outcomes for this patient going to be? While it's much easier to do that with a focal TBI injury, uh, a, a focal TBI. Um, and the, you know, these two things already, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the type of injury that you're going to have. Um, the forces that you get in your brain are going to uh, propagate differently in different brain regions, the type of way that interacts with different tissue is going to be different. So with diffuse injury, something that's very common is actually uh, diffuse axonal injury. So maybe there's no immediate loss of like neurons versus like where like a, a brick falls on your head, skull cracks, like in that exact region, you might have like hemorrhaging, maybe like blood, like, like seeping um, an immediate loss of neuronal of, of cells due to like the, the, the trauma there. Uh, but with diffuse axonal injury, it's something that's very hard to notice, but it's just because your brain is twisting like gelatin, it, the axons shred and damage and squeeze and contort, and it causes a type of injury that's a lot more difficult to catch. Um, but either way, in both focal and diffuse, you have neuronal loss. That's one of the main things that happens. You have loss of neurons. You have diffuse axonal damage. You have microvasculature damage. And that's all within this like acute like first uh, hour or two of injury, but traumatic brain injury, oh, is the bulk of it is really the secondary injury, which is sustained by this like positive feedback loop of things like neuroinflammation, neuroapoptosis, excitotoxicity, blood-brain barrier disruption, mitochondrial disruption, um, and. So, yeah, a lot of people t tend to think of it as like, like as a chronic rather than an acute disorder. That's really the best way to uh, think about it. Um, and 
when you have that injury, you're, you know, you have, let's say, uh, stuff, like cells start to break open in lice from the mechanical, like, trauma. So you have uh, intracellular components out into the extracellular space. If you have macrovasculature damage, you have things that normally the brain keeps out, like, let's say, fiber, uh, fibrogen, um, which is only present in, like, the blood. Uh, and that'll seep into the, that extracellular space within the brain. Um, and astrocytes and microglial cells will detect these things and they're like oh my god like there's an injury this isn't supposed to be here because there's an injury we're going to go from being in this like resting state um and this anti-inflammatory like resting state where we're doing like also different sorts of functions we're going to change our phenotype to be what people call reactive astrocytes or reactive microglia um and those phenotypes you know are associated with like having like some benefits in that acute phase um it's only when they don't ever switch back into the non-inflammatory uh, phenotype that it becomes a problem but when these cells switch into that phenotype they start releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines and that drives the activation of more astrocytes and microglial cells into these pro-inflammatory phenotypes um they produce uh, things like MMP9, which is an enzyme that degrades the tight junctions between endothelial cells, which then further makes the blood-brain barrier more leaky, which then further exacerbates this pro-inflammatory response uh, because they're not able to kind of function in the resting state. That one of the things they would do is kind of like keep a good glutamate balance uh, in like the synaptic space. But when they're in that pro-inflammatory state, they don't have that kind of janitorial function as well. Uh, and so you are kind of driving excitotoxicity, uh, as well. Um, and this kind of, uh, this, this toxic environment that it creates drives neuronal, uh, for more like neuronal loss. It impairs, uh, at a chronic time scale, it impairs recovery and all these things just basically like feed on each other, uh, driving this inflammatory state in such a way that never actually resolves. Um, and you because you have all these like all this sort of like dysfunction and stuff and pro-inflammatory state uh you you really see dysfunction getting worse over time so sometimes you'll actually see patients like have a huge decrease in cognition and and stuff so like they're they, it looks like like their scores on certain like co cognitive tests could drop a lot after injury and then as they're doing the like, cognitive training and, and, and physical recovery and stuff like that like they might you, you see their scores improve and then plateau, but then at a longer time scales, you could sometimes see that plateau actually start to get worse again. And that's the chronic injury that has never actually gone away. And so even though the brain has recovered to some extent, mostly due to endogenous like um, plasticity mediated recovery, because that that's the only way that your brain really recovers from this is plasticity. You have an injury, loss of cells, loss of connections, but your brain just figures out how to reconnect its way itself such that you don't have to, um, such that you can still do the tasks that you could do before with less circuitry or just with a different circuitry. Um, but that only takes you so far if the underlying disease, which is this chronic TBI, this chronic inflammatory disorder, uh, never actually resolves. So what do you think, um, which of the like say psychedelics and ketamine, salvia, and all, uh, I don't know what, what other drugs you might have thought of, but uh, which of them do you think might be most useful 
in the case of tra uh, traumatic brain injury, and I guess also, um, when do you think they will be useful? Like, should people take them um, right during the traumatic injury? Like, should we just give everyone, like, uh, I don't know, ketamine on hand just in case they have, like, a stroke or uh, some kind of brain injury and then just immediately <laughs> take it, you know? Or, like, would this yeah. be treatment post-injury or et cetera? I think, yeah, so that's a good question. So I have, like, a almost this, like, list of different potential, like, uh, mechanisms um, by which I think different psychedelic compounds could mediate some sort of, like, benefits. Um, very few of these psychedelics that, that I'm going to talk about have actually been used, like, in, in, in a TBI setting in vivo or, like, in a clinical setting um, with TBI patients. So... A lot of like this stuff is like kind of like speculation based off other studies. I suspect that X will happen when we use these drugs in a psychedelic context. But um, yeah, and based on the different effects that these different compounds have and what and what that I think they will have in a TBI context, uh, they might be better in the acute or the chronic phase. So, for example, if we're if we're talking about the anti-inflammatory effects and how you know we want to give a psychedelic to reduce inflammation. We don't want to do that in the acute term. Like our brain has this inflammatory response for a reason. It is beneficial to a reason to an extent, right? Like glial scar formation is not an inherently bad thing. Like we do not want to disrupt the body's ability to like form a glial scar. It is a protective mechanism. Um, but if the if that uh, you know if, if formation of the glial scar like the the, the processes that lead to that become pathological and like the astrocytes never leave their pro-inflammatory state now that that is a problem that is something we want to address so i think for anti-inflammatory effects we want to do chronic treatment for people that are in like the chronic recovery stage so maybe like two to six months out from their you know two 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 months and and, and over you know if you're like 10 years out from your tbi i think it's still beneficial but at least like two three months out from the injury so that you allow uh, some initial endogenous mechanisms to like treat the, the injury. Um, and then you just want to reduce the, the chronic effects so that the condition doesn't deteriorate way beyond what the acute injury even was. Um, some compounds I do think will have a benefit like in the acute phase, specifically salvinorin A. So salvinorin A is a, uh, a very selective uh, kappa opioid receptor agonist. And at least in a uh, models of ischemic stroke, um, which they've done in like piglets, and they've done in uh, they've done in piglets, and they've done in rhesus monkeys. Um, would they show? I, I don't think they got into the mechanism of action in rhesus monkeys, but with like piglets and rodents, they did show that uh, salvinorin A through activation of the kappa opioid receptor. Um, seems to increase nitric oxide and endothelial nitric oxide synthase production, um, which both seem to be uh, essential for allowing, for restoring um, and protecting cerebrovascular function in the context of like an ischemic stroke. So usually if you have like an ischemic stroke, your, your, uh, the blood vessels in your brain's ability to expand, to dilate it, constrict um, based on what your um, – your blood pressure is, you know, which is something that they're doing all the time. That's just like how healthy like blood vessels in your brain function. They have to dilate and expand 
depending on on the metabolic needs of the neurons in that brain region. Um, they have to expand and contract depending on like what your body's blood pressure is, so that like you don't like have like a mismatch in it, like some weird like pathological mismatch in intracranial pressure and blood pressure um, that can drive injury. Uh, and it seems like salmonella ace is able to protect that following stroke and minimize the impact of stroke, um, like hypoxia, um, which then drives neuronal loss, inflammation and stuff like that. You know, stroke is very similar to traumatic brain injury in a lot of ways. Um, it is a, it's, you know, it, you, you, you could call it traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury really is referring to a mechanical injury, like in the literature, but ischemia does affect like an ischemic stroke will affect the brain in a lot of similar ways. Um, mostly the biochemical cascades that you see. So I think that something like salvinorin A being administered acutely, like it was in these studies, uh, in such a way that it prevents cerebrovascular dysfunction and prevents ischemic, like the formation of a hypoxic environment, which will just make the injury worse. I think that that is a great thing to administer in the uh, acute phase, or at least it seems like it might be. Um, it's hard to know completely because, again, like salvinorinate does have as well some anti-inflammatory effects, and it's hard to know if administering salvinorinate in that acute setting is actually going to impair some sort of like endogenous recovery mechanism. And so that if you were to look at the six months after injury, it actually looks like animals did worse because they didn't have that initial inflammatory response. But I think the risk of developing um, hypoxia is much greater than, than is likely to do a lot more damage than that. So I, I could see like something like salvinorin A being very beneficial for the acute, um, the acute phase. And that's currently how they're thinking of using it for stroke. It's like a patient comes in, presents with stroke. You give them, you would give them like, like an intranasal spritz of like salvinorin A and that keeps their injury from like worsening beyond would like like yeah keeps it from getting worse than it already is so i actually would like to comment on uh this part because i am uh as people probably know very obsessed with dynorphin and so dynorphin is uh kind of has some of the same mechanisms as salvinorin a and uh from uh from what i've read it seems like dynorphin could actually be playing a role in um, kind of an endogenous response to potentially damaging, uh, I guess, like neurochemical situations in the brain. And um, like, for example, um, there's some research that it can be protective against uh, uh, seizures and like certain seizure related damage and um and like kind of the way that i think of it is so so it tends to have an inhibitory action for the most part and uh like one of the ways i like to think of it but it might be just totally oversimplified <laughs> but um i like to look at it as if um kind of there is this dynorphin system and i think it has other roles than this but I think one of its roles is to kind of, uh, uh, kind of like an emergency button to shut down a lot of functions. So like, you'll basically like be turning stuff off. So maybe it doesn't, in some sense, short circuit or something like that. But so so you're kind of protecting it maybe by doing that. But you might also be 
very strongly impairing function, which might explain why people get like these crazy trips or amnesia on things like salvia. Mm. Or like uh, sometimes after seizures, people will get psychotic. And like one of the papers that I like that it talks about uh, dynorphin in the context of seizures is that they, they mention that it might be anticonvulsant, but at the cost of uh, producing psychotic effects afterwards. Mm. And um, I think it's really interesting because it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like safe mode or something like that, like with a computer, you know, like just like making the computer very, not very functional in the case of like a serious uh, potential threat or virus or whatever it is or hardware damage. And uh, yeah, then, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much it. But yeah, it's fascinating. So yeah, uh, I. I I think, yeah, no, I I think, yeah, dynorphin is really interesting. It's something I definitely want to keep learning and reading about. Um, But it, there is, yeah, there is uh, some, I mean, yeah, salvinorinase hitting the kappa opioid receptor, which is like the endogenous ligand for dynorphin in the brain. Um, After TBI, you do get a, it's called like post-traumatic brain injury epilepsy. Uh, and it is, yeah, you have a, a very elevated risk of developing epilepsy after traumatic brain injury. Um, now you do see decreased levels of dynorphin after traumatic brain injury. Um, and, and in an interesting way, it's not like equal between both hemispheres. Like if you receive an injury on one hemisphere, I, like the changes in dynorphin levels aren't equivalent, like across like the all regions of like of the brain, which is interesting. I don't think we totally understand like what drives this, what, what is driving the decrease in dynorphin. Um, but, uh, yeah. And there's also more things that are contributing to that epileptic state. Like it's not just a decrease in dynorphin. It's, um, a preferential loss of inhibitory neurons because whenever you get, um, whenever you have TBI, one of the things that you do see is like this decrease in inhibitory tone throughout the brain. Part of it is, uh, just part of it at least is because you do have a, preferential degradation of perineuronal nets, which is just like a type of ECM in the, uh, a category, I guess, sort of, of like ECM that you have in the brain that is really important for uh, interneuron, inhibitory interneurons, especially like a hippocampal region to like survive and be able to like form synapses and all that, you know, ECM like regulates synaptic plasticity in, in some ways it regulates uh, like, synapse formation, axonal outgrowth, like it, it's a very active component of the brain and that gets very damaged during TBI um, due to the release of all these enzymes and stuff. So uh, it's, uh, that's part of the thing that drives epilepsy. And so is like pathological, like synaptic remodeling. Um, things start to form synapses in very weird ways. In some areas of the brain, people think that there's like a lot of recurrent like synapses synapse formation that's happening where like neurons are kind of like plugging into themselves in a way and like so they stimulate they overstimulate themselves there's like axonal sprouting aberrant sprouting that i think happens in the dentate gyrus which is just also like has like really severe effects on like the function of those circuits um and while it's unclear how we could like really address those things if we can at least increase levels of dynorphin to like base level then that could go a long way to reducing like post-traumatic brain injury epilepsy. And so I do think that'd be really interesting to see whether Salvinorin A administration, perhaps like comparing like a, an acute versus like a chronic low level administration of Salvinorin A can kind of help the, uh, help 
the system per, get back to producing uh, the levels of uh, endogenous dynorphin that they would produce like pro, like before traumatic brain injury. Um, since we're not super sure like what's driving the decrease of dynorphin, it's uncertain whether just administering like a ligand of dynorphin is going to simulate like levels, but there could be like some treatment strategy that perhaps does that perhaps like starting from like an, a high acute dose and then like tapering the dose off, like drives the body to increase its production of dynorphin because it ex- like it was expecting this to be more stimulated. So there's a lot of different strategies perhaps that could be like pursued in that. And that's why like there's just so much research to be done like in vivo um, with this, but uh, it is, it is very exciting to see like, yeah, what can we do with like dynorphin and salvinorin within this context of TBI? So one thing I've been thinking about, um, so I actually did a post that uh, some of you might have seen a while back that was kind of about concerns for using, uh, there's like some company that wants to use DMT, particularly in the acute phase of traumatic brain injuries. And um, I mean, I don't really know if it's actually going to be something that's risky, but I think that um, I think that it's possible. Uh, and basically, like I wrote a post like outlining various mechanisms which might be a risk, uh, mostly focusing on things like how there's like an increase in glutamate mm. uh, during brain injury, especially the acute phase, and um, uh, and that only lasts like I think it was like thirty minutes or t- an hour. Uh, the particularly sharp increase. It was like something like 80-fold, or I think it was even more in certain studies. Um, And uh, so, like, glutamate normally has excitotoxic effects uh, if it... uh, not. I don't know if I should say normally, but it, it is popularly known to be one of the main mechanisms for things like excitotoxicity, uh, via one of the receptors called the NMDA receptor. And um, so I basically was you know, like bringing up research that showed the possibility that either psychedelics enhance glutamate activity uh, or um, enhance binding at the NMDA receptor, but it's, it's mixed actually on that receptor and it seems to depend on like a whole bunch of complex things like uh like one of them seems to be whether or not the 5-HT1A receptor is bound and uh I don't really understand why that is yet and it, it even seems that that receptor is involved in how potent an effect you would get subjectively with DMT is so that's mm-hmm. also like kind of interesting like suggesting that um that potentially whatever it might or, or maybe even potentially suggesting that it might have dissociative effects depending on uh, which serotonin receptors are active or not active enough, um, which is weird because the NMDA receptor seems to, it is the main mechanism for like a lot of the dissociative drugs, which might also maybe have a potential... Um, effect in brain injuries. I think it's been kind of mixed. I think that was one of the first ones that people studied, uh, or at least one of the first trippy psychedelic type mm-hmm. of drugs that was studied for 
being neuroprotective during, I, I don't know if it was strokes or physical brain injury or what, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess let's, what do you think about the classical serotonin psychedelics? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's definitely a lot of potential for the classical, like serotonergic psychedelics in the context of TBI. Um, a lot of the studies that first got me interested in this stuff were with like DOI, which is not like, I guess, like a classical psychedelic by like what we normally think of like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, it's but it is, right, right. It's almost, yeah, it's still a serotonergic psychedelic and um, yeah, it like showed effects like in rat aorta, like smooth muscle cells, they would like, um, they would expose to things like TNF alpha and they would um, add DOI and it would show that it would prevent like the expression of things like um, the, the pre prevent the like inflammatory signaling cascade, the translocation of things like NF kappa beta to the nucleus, which is like hugely important in like facilitating like uh, inflammatory processes, neuroapoptosis, et cetera. So there's, I think there is uh, a lot of potential for them there. Um, I don't think we really have a huge understanding of why, like, yeah, like, ser like stimulation of the serotonin receptor, like how that affects like a, a neuron's like susceptibility to excitotoxicity. Um, I think that's something we need to look more at. I think it's like really, at least for me, I'm like not educated enough in that like aspect of like the bio, like, but neurobiochemistry to like say like why like why i think that's happening or how i think that relates to like our ability to use it in the concept of tbi but what uh on the note of excitotoxicity there's two things that are really interesting one is that um parmine which is one of the uh it's the mmao inhibitor in the south american psychedelic brew ayahuasca with the other half of that being dmt and Harmine actually was used in a in vivo TBI study. I can't remember like which university did this, but they basically showed that it increased uh, it improved um, uh, it increased expression of GLT one, which is a glutamate transporter, uh, and increased expression of that and increased glutamate clearance. Um, and GLT one is often expressed on astrocytes, uh, often used by astrocytes to maintain like appropriate levels of glutamate in the synaptic area because the synapse is not just a presynaptic and a postsynaptic site between two neurons that synapse is actually a tripartite synapse by which an astrocyte is wrapping all around that and basically always keeping things at the appropriate levels it is actively participating in like you know making sure like making sure that everything that the signaling process can go like function appropriately and so by if uh, having something like Carmine that can increase GLT-1 expression, it's likely that it could have some benefits in reducing like excitotoxicity in the brain by helping astrocytes actually do their function better, which in, after TBI, you know, they become inflammatory. They stop, they decrease their, their expression of this glutamate transporter. And so uh, it, it, it adds lends the brain to being like in this like really, uh, excitotoxic state so perhaps that's the one one way we can address that and if there uh whatever anti-inflammatory effects you already would get from a serotonergic compound like dmt perhaps coupling that with like harmine you know in like a an indigenous like ayahuasca brew actually is one of the best ways that you could treat this um 
again, with the caveat that we don't know what the appropriate like dose for this would be, like a, like macrodose, microdose, uh, how long should you be on this treatment, and how uh, and when should you should you start this treatment? Again, there's, you know, especially with TBI, there's like so much um, the the initiation of treatment and the uh, how long it goes on. It's like an especially like, like important thing to ask and. It's uh, something that is it's being studied for a lot of different like compounds and stuff like already. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a huge rabbit hole um, to and, and I'll add actually just one thing to that, which is that, you know, and in, in TBI and I, I've said this directly and I'm, I'm hinting at it further that just. Uh, the heterogeneity between injuries is huge. Like, was your injury focal? Was it diffuse? Like, what? Like, how much intensity of force was it? Where were the forces focused? Like, was it a sagittal like rotation? Like, uh, tra- like transverse like rotation? Um, how uh, how were the forces like focused? Like, how long was this since your last injury? Was it like mild repetitive injury or a single like you know intense injury? How old were you when you got this injury? Were you a child? Were you an adolescent? Were you like uh, like a like a much older adult, you know, all these things are going to determine the extent of like what your injury looks like, what the pathology of your injury looks like. You know, it's so it's very different than saying we're going to use psychedelics to treat Parkinson's. Parkinson's has a very understandable, very homogenous sort of like pathology. Sure, I'm sure there is like some variation between patient to patient, but roughly you can take a if somebody has Parkinson's symptoms, you can take a brain scan, you can say. You can say we're expecting to see a decrease in dopaminergic projection at, you know, brain imaging that you do. You can say this patient is likely it's progressed this far and we are expecting their motor symptoms to be this bad. Um, And if they lose this much more, it's going to get this much bad, like worse and his like symptoms. And so we can do that with Parkinson's. We can't do that with TBI. And that makes it really difficult for us to say blanketly the psychedelics will be beneficial i think there will be some blanketly like beneficial uh benefits from some psychedelic compounds but it's very difficult to say with utmost confidence especially right now with how little research we have that a it is blanket it's just it's good it's beneficial for sure and that there's no potential for side effects for sure um you know with the the first thing of like is it beneficial like yeah, you know, anti-inflammatory, reducing chronic inflammation, that's going to be a part of anyone's TBI most likely. If you can reduce chronic inflammation, that's good overall. But if you are mostly suffering from like a diffuse axonal injury, I don't know if psychedelics will actually help you because it's not going to like make your, at least I don't think that it'll make your like these neurons like send out brand new projections like, you know, and, and I don't think that's going to happen. So most of your like cognitive disability is from diffuse axonal injury it might not be that helpful you might still get some benefits from because the injury won't get worse over time you know you stop that chronic cascade and that's good but i don't know if it'll bring you back to full baseline uh and then the injury aspect we were touching on it before you know we have in tbi the susceptibility to seizure and if you have the susceptibility to seizure it's hard to say whether having like like whether psychedelics could trigger a seizure for you if like if you have TBI and it's hard to say if it is a seizure that'll be benign or if it's a sort of epileptic activity that will trigger like you know like 
further perpetuate the inflammatory state or further draw or hasten the development of like, like increasing the amount of neural apoptosis that you're, you have in your brain. And so it's very difficult to say that it won't have negative side effects. Um, will it, if you have cerebrovascular decoupling and your brain's not able to regulate blood, uh, it's intracranial pressure. Well, which is a thing in TB, it's a moderate to severe TBI. It's hard to say if psychedelics won't potentially like cause, you know, direct tissue trauma from your like intracranial pressure just increasing like through the roof um because it's not able to regulate itself we don't know if that's if that will or will not happen maybe it'll happen with a very specific subset of patients and that's not going to be and we just don't know that right now so i do like i have heard like companies like um wasana health uh heroic hearts project um them talking like at SciTech. Uh, like on a seminar they had like back in March about the, the athletes and veterans towards healing, you know, psychedelics or TBI and PTSD. And it, it's really, you know, it's awesome to hear people sharing their like personal stories of like how they heal themselves with, with like psychedelics um, and improve their condition and TBI. But there's also so much like that we don't know that I wish there was just like that grain of salt of like, Hey, you know, we understand there's no treatment for TBI. So if you're dealing, you're living with these symptoms, of course, you're going to like try anything, something you want some hope of like, maybe I can get better. And that's so attractive to people. And I understand why it's attractive to people. And I completely understand people are going to want to self-medicate, but I think it's just important for them to go into it with this idea of like, okay, there's a chance that this is actually risky. We don't know. But I'm willing to take that risk because I don't want to live with these symptoms forever. I want to get better. So I'm going to take that risk. It's worth it to me. That's different. That to me is okay and I support it versus like saying, oh, my God, there's like, you know, nothing could go wrong. Like take psychedelics. Like it could, it could, it can heal you. Like don't worry about it. You know, like it's, I think that's a little irresponsible. So I do wish those companies when they're talking about this, instead of just sharing their experiences and making it seem like it's, there's no downside, um, that say that we don't know how this will interact with different kinds of TBI. It's a very heterogeneous pathology. And as such, the potential for uh, side effects is utterly unknown. Yeah. There was, um, so something that's kind of interesting, and this is, uh, I actually was like thinking about this, like somewhere along there towards the beginning. So it might sound like a tangent now, but, but, um, there's this interesting thing that um, that the mechanisms for excitotoxicity, uh, glutamate excitotoxicity, are also the same mechanisms of, uh, or at least some of the mechanisms of glutamate-mediated plasticity. And so I think that gets really interesting that potentially the mechanisms involved in plasticity are also mechanisms that are potentially excitotoxic. And it's also, so it's the NMDA receptor that I'm talking about here. And, um, uh, and that mechanism is also involved in, uh, learning and memory and, uh, different things. So it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting that this mechanism that seems like it's good because it's related to learning, um, might actually also bring about like, damage and um yeah something about that uh oh when you mentioned the seizures the thing i was thinking about this and this is kind of just like a brainstorm uh speculation uh here but 
Um, so you mentioned about, uh, like, I think you mentioned about dendritic sprouting or arborization and yeah. um, how it could be a bad thing. And that's kind of interesting because the psychedelics seem to induce dendritic arborization as well. And, uh, like, so there's this thing I've been thinking for kind of a while, but I don't talk about it that much because, like, even if this were the case, I'm still not sure that that even means that they're bad. Um, but uh, I've had this thought um, that what if these chemicals are kind of, in a sense, simulating uh, brain injury actually because I found some stuff about like how if you lesion parts of the brain like well it was one study about lesioning the prefrontal cortex seems to uh, induce like plasticity really quickly and um, mm. I don't know and then when you mentioned the dendritic arborization I was thinking of the effects of psychedelics too and like sometimes they've produced seizures in people even if it it seems to not be common with the ones that are partial agonists of the serotonin receptors, but but it does seem to be something that happens more often with things like N-bones, um, which are like full agonists at the serotonin receptors, and people seem to also die from them. So <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Um, hmm. But it would be kind of interesting if... Um, so there's all that, but then there's also this other possibility that I wanted to bring up that... Uh, this might be like kind of a wild speculation too, but there is this idea that I love that um, that the psychedelics might be working by inducing a state of, uh, I guess, the brain, or I don't know if I would say the mind, but the state, maybe both even, but uh, the state in the brain that might be more like what infants are in and that this like these plasticity effects and um kind of a lot of the other effects that are observed might be uh something that is actually adaptive during uh, uh childhood and that um like maybe part of it is that your brain is not supposed to kind of settle into one way of functioning until it has enough experiences accumulated to kind of solidify and become inflexible at a certain point. And um, so it'd be interesting if uh, instead of like some sort of, uh, I mean, it would still be biological, but instead of like working on the level of reducing inflammation uh, or something else, uh, or like neuroprotection or something like that, maybe they might be useful in the way of like, maybe if people were taking like small amounts on a frequent basis, they might be able to learn uh, in different ways and develop different skills, uh, maybe as a result of this plastic state. Although I think that that might be a, a leap of kind of logic there like i think i think that sounds really interesting but i i think it's still way too early to kind of like i feel like that yeah. could get into pseudoscience territory <laughs> so <laughs> you know um i don't know but but there oh, is yeah, stuff no. like I'll, I'll just let, real quick say there is some stuff showing that like uh 
uh, certain forms of learning are enhanced by certain psychedelics and animal models, at least. So, so that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I do think, yeah. So <clears throat> improving plasticity, uh, the, like just, yeah, the brain's ability to rewire for accomplishing the same tasks is that, that is one of the, uh, main benefits i think psychedelics in the context of traumatic brain injury if nothing else if the anti-inflammatory effects are negligible if the dynorphin stuff is negligible if everything else is negligible and does nothing to really improve your recovery like improve anything then at the very least the plasticity um induction of psychedelics i think will allow your brain to just further rewire and in, in a beneficial way because that, that's that's what's driving recovery right right now that's why one of like the things they prescribe you is basically exercise because exercise increases like plasticity in the brain, levels of BDNF in the brain, levels of plasticity. So exercise is a great thing if you have traumatic brain injury. Um, what's int- interesting though, when you mentioned like the whole, like, oh, it puts your mind in like a more like young state. Uh, that's really interesting because we actually, you know, there are some studies showing that contrary to like, what maybe is like the lot what you think the logical outcome for this would be um contrary to like normal expectations children uh especially like children in like middle school age uh tend to actually have some like the worst outcomes like uh from traumatic brain injury um even though they're like these are like people when they're in their critical period of like brain and cognitive like plasticity and development when they get an injury there and their plasticity mechanisms are like ad, like their endogenous plasticity is like going so strong they have like worse outcomes so why we don't fully know but it is uh, it's a complicated picture and that's part of part of what makes me a little skeptical of like is increasing plasticity alone going to be enough because why are children even though there's such a plastic state why do they have like worse outcomes perhaps it's because their extent of injury is worse because the just uh of like the biomechanics of like an injury like on a child's head is different than you know biomechanical uh, aspects of like what happens to an adult head when it's injured uh who knows we don't have like a, a, a definitive conclusion to why that is but children yeah don't recover as heartily as you would expect um, from a traumatic brain injury. So uh, it's interesting. Who knows exactly how you know, important plastic Yeah, That actually is really an interesting point. I think something that kind of uh, came to my mind is what if the the brain injury, like say they're in this plastic state, but what if the brain injury actually kind of shuts down the plasticity? And what if it's really bad because... Like for the child, they, uh, like they, there's a lot of things they haven't even developed yet. And what if like they are dependent on the fact that they're plastic and all of a sudden it's like taken away and they become like kind of like, what if they like exit their critical period mm. too early all of a sudden and then they're just like left stunted or something weird like that. And also maybe, uh, maybe being younger and having less development already means that it's easier to destroy things as well hmm. Hmm. yeah no that's actually really interesting uh hmm. i so i i yeah stuff like with youth is something that i'm definitely not as like familiar with but 
I know, and there there is one study, uh, like maybe like a couple years ago, um, that was with, I think like juvenile, like young um, juvenile rodents, and like doing TBI like with adult rodents to see like what the different like outcomes were, and I think it was showing that like in, acute injury in the juvenile like uh, brain was less than acute injury in the uh, adult rodent brain, um, specifically just like in terms of like neuronal loss, like how large was the, the tissue, the tissue lesion. Um, but that the chronic phase, the juvenile mice like uh, deteriorated much more quickly and had a m- more uh, tissue loss and a larger lesion than the adult, uh, the adult mouse. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think that it's so much more like, I don't think that it's really the plasticity there. Like, I think that there is something happening at, at the bio, like at the, the level of like the inflammatory response at the level of like blood brain barrier permeability that for some reason, juvenile brains are just more susceptible. And cause like, at least in this, it's just showing that like the degradation is quicker. Um, if, if plasticity differences were really important in why juveniles like respond worse, I would expect there to be a similar decline. And then it's just that juveniles never get as good of a recovery, but the decline is similar, but it seems like juvenile decline is like more rap. Like it's they, their chronic injury just looks worse. Um, And that chronic injury is like, especially we're talking about like in this like, mouse model which you know doesn't translate one-to-one to humans you know but it uh showing like there's more neuronal loss a bigger lesion well that's independent of plasticity why are these brains like showing like an exacerbated like lesion sized uh when the animal is younger um we don't know it's uh it's interesting it's interesting See, what if uh th- that's got me thinking about the seizure thing too now where like um um I think in some cases of seizures, isn't it something like that there's too much um, connections or something like that? And uh, maybe like before synaptic pruning, like, uh, like, so like my understanding about some of what might happen in brain damage is like, there might be like this first, um, like whatever, wherever, like, like say with a focal injury in particular, there might be, like this one spot where things are happening really badly, but I think that some of that probably ends up spreading like excitotoxic signals that kind of go a little bit beyond like the initial place of the damage or something like that. And maybe mm-hmm. if there's like too much connectivity, then uh, then there might be uh, like more spreading of something like that, or I don't know. Or uh, maybe like stuff like plasticity might enable the spread of damage or something. I don't know. But this is all like just for the listeners. This is like super speculative. Just a warning. So, but it's still interesting. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. I, I think that's an interesting theory for sure. Um, definitely not. So, I, yeah, I don't think I can like give too much. Yeah, it's very speculative. I can't give too much like thought onto that like right now but that is really interesting that's something i'll have to like think about more um i feel like i yeah i for me i i come back to thinking about like if whether the inflammatory response is just like different like with like youth like maybe there's like a more like strong like inflammatory response um 
which is kind of like where I go back to like thinking like, okay, is there a way that we can like reduce that inflammatory response? Um, and actually like some things like, uh, five, the studies that I was like referring to earlier, um, with, uh, it is like relevant to like excitotoxicity and just like neuronal loss is that, um, so DOI specifically, they were doing these studies in the rat aorta, smooth muscle cells, and they showed that when they added like TNF-alpha, this inflammatory cytokine, uh, that uh, TNF-alpha would increase VCAM1 and ICAM1. Uh, there's these uh, seal, uh, uh, cell adhesion molecules uh, that are expressed by endothelial cells. And when you... and, and this is something that you do have happen in TBI. Endothelial cells in the blood-brain barrier will increase expression of VCAM and ICAM1. And this allows for leukocytes and macrophages to kind of like stick to, because there's these like higher expression of cell adhesion molecules, they're like sticking more to the endothelial cells and are able to infiltrate, like squeeze through like the tight gap junctions and enter the uh, extracellular space in the brain. Um, but DOI seems to like attenuate that expression of VCAM1 and ICAM1 that's being triggered by TNF-alpha. Now, this is in rat aorta smooth muscle cells. Like, would this happen with brain endothelial cells? Who knows? But that is something that I'm really interested in. Like, I think that'd be a really interesting thing to look at specifically um, because it, it could indicate that we can attenuate blood-brain barrier permeability. And if we can do that, I think that goes a long way to like stopping that kind of positive cat feet, you know, positive feedback loop uh, of inflammatory act, uh, activation. Um, there's also uh, this, this same drug was also shown to um, inhibit uh, TNF-alpha-induced uh, nuclear translocation of NF-kappa-beta, which is like when that happens, that's how you get uh, – so that's a pathway for triggering cellular apoptosis and glial reactivity, and studies have uh, – different studies have shown like when – without using DOI, but that if you stop NF-kappa-beta translocation – you can reduce the uh, activation of, of glial cells like asteroids or macroglia to like whatever triggers. Uh, you, you can reduce neuronal apoptosis if you block NF-kappa-beta translocation to the nucleus. And so maybe one like mechanisms like this for whatever reason could just be more potent in like children and in adolescence. Maybe it's like a response so that the brain, again, it's like a, a runaway response. Maybe it's stronger in use so that like, if there is some sort of like pathogenic like activity or something happens, there's a strong immune response, but it's just so strong of an immune response in children that it ends up like causing more, more damage than, than helping. Um, and the other, uh, another thing related to that, um, kind of like how can we like protect like tissue, like following these injuries, especially if you're like thinking about like excitotoxicity is, uh, the Sigma one receptor. So Sigma one receptor is, um, like, yeah, and after TBI, you have, like, these elevated concentrations of extracellular glutamate that can trigger uh, cytotoxic intracellular sodium and calcium uh, influxes. And then that elevated uh, calcium causes mitochondrial dysfunction, which then subsequently impairs ATP production and increases the concentrations of reactive oxygen species um, or, like, uh, and, and that that oxidative damage alone also drives like apoptosis drives more inflammatory processes and causes like all sorts of disruptions by itself. And sigma run receptors are expressed on that mitochondrial, uh, uh, membrane and they facilitate the stress response 
by increasing interest, like when activated, increasing intracellular levels of uh, antioxidant proteins and improving the um, response to like elevated like uh, sodium and calcium like influxes that are triggered by like elevated glutamate levels. And so I think something like DMT or 5-MeO-DMT or ketamine, which have been shown to be sigma-1 receptor agonists, uh, could reduce inflammation uh, the inflammatory response and cytokine releasing glial activation by activating sigma-1 receptors and improving that response to excitotoxic stress and oxidative stress um, just by improving the mitochondrial-like response in, to these conditions, um, which then subsequently reduces the uh, – attenuates that chronic inf- inflammation and that neuronal loss that we would otherwise see. It seems very – complicated <laughs> and uh the yeah. sigma one receptor that one is actually one that i kind of focused on a little bit uh in the uh essay that is about like whether or not we should use dmt for brain injuries and um the sigma one like all the stuff you said there is actually stuff i don't know that much about but um, there are some interesting things like, uh, that sigma one receptors seem to be connected to NMDA receptors. And, um, I think that they've been shown to, uh, let me just make sure. Yeah. So there is a study that showed that it, uh, sigma one agonism seems to potentiate NMDA receptor activity, but there's also like some of the one, some of the studies they've tested sigma one agonists and antagonists uh, in the, in the uh, context of brain injury. And um, I don't know. So it seems like really complicated because some of these, uh, so the, the agonists, one of the agonists that was studied or, or he actually, I think it was more than one of the agonists studied for the brain injury protection or neuroprotection was they were NMDA receptor negative allosteric modulators. So it's almost like an antagonist, but not exactly. And uh, so like that gets just super extra weird, I feel like, because um, I don't know. And the other thing is DMT was actually studied for uh, brain injury in animals, I think, where uh, they the authors mentioned that they think sigma-1 receptors are kind of the key effect there, and they also used NMDA receptor antagonists alongside the DMT. Uh, in, uh, they used uh, more than one of them, actually, <laughs> um, and in different phases, like during the injury and during the administration of DMT. And, um, so I don't know, it gets like really weird because like, it's possible that maybe mixing those two or kind of pairing it with something that stops the NMDA receptor activity might be crucial to that. And I'm kind of nervous that, uh, some of the studies might not be paying attention to the, uh, that aspect because of the fact that. Like, they might be neuroprotective, but they're also not really checking something that's purely sigma-1 agonist, uh, and especially not checking it without 
having the NMDA receptor blocked, basically, or reduced, or something like that. So, um... Yeah. It gets so complicated. <laughs> it's, it, it's yeah, crazy. no, it really... And that, and I think that's part of the fact, like, that's part of the reason, I think, why we haven't been able to find, like, a good... Uh, that's why we've had so many, like, pharma pharmaceutical, like, failures in developing a drug to treat TBI, is that it's usually very focused on, like, okay... This we can target this receptor. We can improve TBI. We can do this one thing. We can improve TBI. But it's such a complex disorder with so many different things going wrong in a sense, like at the same time, and so many different things feeding on each other that it's very difficult to like say like this one mechanism we will create a significant improvement in traumatic brain injury. I feel like you need to have something that is multifaceted acting through multiple mechanisms to improve traumatic brain injury outcomes. Um, I think ketamine is probably going to be a really good compound for that. And it's, I think probably going to be one of the first compounds that gets looked at very seriously for TBI because of just the lack of re like relative lack of regulatory hurdles to like overcome if you want to work with TBI versus like with DMT. Um, and there are, there's only one study that I'm aware of in vivo, like a study explicitly looking at the outcomes of uh, mice after TBI. And so I, that, that's kind of like, if you're like, it, it's a study looking at like NMDA antagonism, but stigma one like simulation. Well, that's like ketamine. Ketamine is also stigma one receptor agonist, but it's an antagonist for NMDA receptors. Um, and in this study, I think it did show that they improved, um, I think ketamine improved the cog like performance of the rodents like on cognitive tests. It reduced the number of like um, reactive astrocytes. Uh, so it seemed to, I think it increased like, uh, I'm trying to remember if they actually looked at plas uh, plasticity, but I think oh, they, they increased cellular proliferation in the hippocampal granule cell layer. So there was... Um, yeah, there was there were some increases like in, in um, neurogenesis. There were improvements like in the behavioral tests. There was a reduction in like the uh, glial like inflammation. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I, I thought that was, that, was, that was a pretty interesting thing to see. So if there are concerns for cytotoxicity, things like ketamine might actually be uh, pretty pretty good compounds to look at for that. If yeah. that's like a I think the especially in the acute phase potentially, but I think it depends on like how you use it because, um, so I've kind of the the things about ketamine uh, that I think are important here is that it seems that the very acute effects might be anti-plastic, but then after that it seems to kind of maybe upregulate plasticity or something like that and mm -hmm. um so like it's interesting because um well okay so i actually linked for for those of you who are listening right now uh probably not in the recording it'll be too late unfortunately but i linked this uh paper that's kind of interesting in the general chat in the discord and Basically, they talk about NMDA receptor antagonists, and they were tried in clinical trials trials for uh, stroke and traumatic brain injury, but they uh, seem to have failed. But 
the authors are arguing mm. that the reason for that is potentially that it depends on acute versus the kind of chronic phase, as we've been talking about a lot. And um, so it seems like uh, that during the acute phase, it might prevent damage, uh, but during the later phase, it seems that NMDA receptor activation might be important for neuronal survival. So there might be like, I, like the way I would imagine is that with something like ketamine, like it really does seem to hit a lot of the perfect things. Like it stimulates kappa receptors, um, it blocks NMDA receptors, which should both reduce uh, damages potentially. And um, so, so maybe I would imagine it's like the acute phase there that uh, you, you could even maybe just like maybe in the future we will just totally like anesthetize people or something like that. And then um, uh, I don't know. Uh, then during the prolonged phase, it might be less useful, but I think that it's possible that maybe small amounts might kind of like... Uh, kind of like on the rebound, once it wears off, might amplify uh, the functions that are good, too. Um, so I wanted to actually ask you, this is like kind of random, but I don't know if you're aware of any research on this. I haven't even checked on this, but is it a thing where if someone had like a stroke or something, could we just like quickly put them in a coma or something like that? Is there anything about that being protective? Or anything like that? I am not aware of that being protective. Uh, although, yeah, that's something I'm not super familiar with. I feel like my gut instinct would be that that's probably not good because at least if they're conscious, you can like have you have some way of like behaviorally like monitoring for like the occurrence of a stroke. But if they're like knocked out, then they could be having like a very severe stroke, and you'd have no idea. I think that's like. Um, at least part of the logic behind why if you get like a head injury, uh, you shouldn't like go to sleep like soon after because you could mm. have like some hemorrhage or something and not even know nobody around you would know you're having a hemorrhage because you're just asleep. Um, so yeah, I do not think I, my intuition is, uh, I don't think that's probably beneficial, but I also don't, I'm not super familiar with that, but I, my intuition is that it's not, it's probably not a beneficial thing. Um, yeah. Hmm. I was kind of yeah. thinking in line with stuff like, so kind of in my head, what I've been thinking about in terms of like, say like seizures, when people kind of become unconscious from them, um, I don't know, it, it seems like there are these kind of phases where maybe it starts off like very excitatory and then... Um, you reach a point where I think like endogenous, like inhibitory functions set in. And uh, so there might be like these waves of things going on where like the first phase you might have, like everything seem brighter or more intense or like you suddenly have like a bunch of memories come or just like weird stuff starts to happen because there's uh, inappropriate like hyperactivation of different things that your brain does. And uh, then potentially you might enter like a second phase where it might be something like dissociation where like you might get amnesia and 
loss of consciousness or psychosis or like basically just degradation of um, things working. And I think both sides can maybe look like like they're both going to involve like not not appropriate functioning, right? Like um, like like I don't I don't know. I it might get this might even just be like totally. Uh, not what happens, but kind of this is what I've been thinking about. Like I kind of like there's some research, for example, on uh, like cortical spreading depression after you get like mm-hmm. uh, a seizure. And, yeah. Um, that's interesting because when people take ketamine, there was like some new study in 2020, I think, where uh, it was in sheep and they look at the effects of ketamine and they're trying to figure out what happens during the dissociative, like, like supposedly it's supposed to map onto maybe the K-hole or something, or mm. dissociative anesthesia, and they noticed, like, the cortical, I, th- I think it was with the EEG, the cortical activity is just shut off temporarily, and, um... That's great, I'll, they did this in sheep? Yeah. I can oh, that's crazy. Uh, I'll link it to you. Um, and it's really interesting, because... I was thinking, like, maybe this cortical spreading depression is, like, related to, like, something that's, like, an endogenous, uh, like, like I, I, my hypothesis maybe like, a bunch of dynorphin releases to kind of stop a bunch of activity in the brain, but there's, like, a point where, like, it's not like it does this perfectly, right? It's not like it just releases just enough that it perfectly just stops a seizure and everything goes back to normal, so maybe, like, it releases, like... And it overshoots, and then maybe you like lose a bunch of functions and get something that might be like salvia or ketamine or something like that. Mm. Yeah, um, but I don't know. It's sort of still hypothetical, but interesting still. Yeah. No, I think no. That's very interesting, and I think that's that's right. Right now, that's. So a lot of the psychological stuff, I feel like it's easier for me to think, oh, you know what, look, like this seems, it seems some physiological elements to the psychological outcomes, like depression, PTSD, I think will have like, you know, um, physiological correlates if you maybe can fix endocrine function or a, a systemic inflammatory state. Um, can you, is that part of the reason that people have such good outcomes from TBI is from, sorry, from PTSD and uh, major depressive disorder, like clinical trials? Maybe. I think there's at least a part of it is, is through that, but with psychological disorders, I think I'm fine with this staying in the, in the domain of like more uh, mystical stuff and being like, okay, you know what? It's working through like mystical, like mystical to just say things that we don't fully like comprehend maybe like we are unable to comprehend with our current frameworks of understanding these disorders but i think there's just so many questions that we can ask and we have the tools to solve right now to further understand the physiological effects of psychedelics and the neurological like the neurobiological effects of psychedelics on questions like that yeah and i i think that's that's what that's why i'm really excited and i think that's going to be like the golden age of psychedelic research like I think the psychological stuff has helped us destigmatize and it's helped us get start to like appreciate that there's a lot of potential research to be done. But now it's like, okay, now we can actually like start to do some really cool stuff. And like we're not even looking at like that many different psychedelic compounds. Like we have a very narrow range of compounds that we're even studying, like ketamine, DMT, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA. 
and like barely really anything with MDMA outside of PTSD. And like those are like that's enough like to count on my hand. And there are hundreds of potential like compounds we haven't looked at, bunch of different analogs we could synthesize, novel analogs we could synthesize, like Olsen Lab synthesized these um, uh, an ibogaine analog that doesn't I think cause potassium uh, doesn't like do like cause potassium influx, which is what like underlies it's like cardiovascular risk of taking uh, ibogaine. And he made a version of ibogaine that has no cardiac risk, but it's still psychoplastogenic. Um, that's incredible. And so I think that's the kind of stuff that we're expecting to see in the future. Maybe we can tailor some of these compounds like salvinorne or ketamine. We can engineer these compounds to be particularly effective in the case of TBI. Maybe just straight up ketamine is good, but we can make it better. We can like um, optimize how long, like, like maybe it's not going to induce um, that much NMDA antagonism. Maybe that's not what we want. Maybe we want to upregulate its uh, sigma one receptor like antagonism. So, or, or agonism. So I think there's a lot of playing around here and yeah, like what you're talking about, I, we don't have answers to, it's like really hard to say with like the little information that we have, but it's really exciting. It's like to imagine like what could be happening in these situations and, um, to hypothesize like what could be driving these effects. Um, and hopefully we actually get to do some of this research like in the coming in the coming years. I think that'll be like the real uh, real renaissance in the, in the in the science. Yeah, it's exciting. I I'm curious to see where it goes. My kind of prediction uh, at the moment is that I think we're gonna go through waves like probably probably because there was this wave where it's like kind of like that panacea wave, right? And there's gonna be right. that. And then there's going to be a backlash and then we'll probably go back into like, well, actually, mm. look, there are, there are good things and just kind of like maybe, maybe like it'll get less extreme over time and there'll be like some middle ground where we figure out what's good and what's bad about them basically. Right. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 I think that'll be great, especially like right now, I feel like we can't imagine psychedelics having any deleterious side effects, which I, again, I just don't think it's like, it's a, like a wise way to like frame it, especially without us like knowing much, um, about these compounds. Uh, I think the potential for side effects is very low. I think with responsible use, it's like almost none, but it's, yeah, it's hard to like, it's, really hard for us to know like in every single case is it okay to use psychedelics is what what side effects do we have to be like mentally prepared for um and yeah i, I agree with like we're gonna like see an expansion and then like a backlash and then expansion um i i really do hope though that you know even if even if it doesn't look like psychedelics are good for tbi in any shape or form like they don't have any benefits if we can at least determine like learn what the the potential side effects are whether like and maybe even find that there isn't a huge risk for side effects then like above the risk that anyone in the, the an average person in like the population would have um i think that'd be really great because right now there's also like you know people with tbi are predisposed to developing a psychiatric disorder like substance use disorder major depressive disorder ptsd and right now it's unclear whether this is like you know we don't know if it's a, an elevated risk because of like neuropathology of neurotrauma or it's the psychological stress of like having this injury. Um, but 
they have these elevated risks and you know this is the stuff we're seeing psychedelics being used as treatments for but they're ex- right now they've been excluded from the clinical trials and so you know it'd be great if we could determine if there's any risk for them just so they're able to like have access to this kind of medicine and can go and have this medicine um, without being afraid of like how this will interact with their like comorbid like condition of traumatic brain injury. Um, I think that, 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 that alone to me is like really exciting if we could just determine, you know, these people can go receive, you know, they can go to go do ayahuasca ceremonies. They can go trip. They can go to like take Molly. They can, you know, go to MD go do an MDMA for PTSD, uh, treatment and there is no risk for them. Um, I think just being able to determine that alone would be a really great outcome for this research. But, uh, I do remain, uh, optimistic that there's likely some benefits but even if not i think just being able to determine the side like potential side effects and such such that we can open up these avenues of treatment for them for psychological disorders that they're so much more likely to uh develop than like the average person is uh is something that i would consider a win as well yeah i like that um so do you think are there things that uh, I kind of ran out of questions now, so I'm curious, do you have um, things that you would like to to bring up or that we didn't cover? Uh, I think just, uh, um, I think just one, uh, probably just one more uh, mechanism, like one more mechanism that I didn't talk too much about. Um, we, so... Uh, it seems that salvin- like salvinorin A, it's interesting that it's anti-inflammatory effects. Um, it, they've been shown to in, like inhibit in in vitro, uh, maybe in vivo as well, that the activation, the switch to an activated reactive pro-inflammatory state for macrophages, um, which are one of the body's like immune cells. And so that's really interesting. It's it, more interesting is that it seems to somehow be mediated partially by CB1. Um, activation, which is crazy because salvinorin A doesn't even activate CB1 receptors directly. Like it's not an agonist for CB1 receptors, has very low affinity. But yet, if you block CB1 receptors, you block the anti-inflammatory effects. You block that ability to inhibit macrophage activation. Um, and so it seems that like somehow kappa opioid receptor activation is then recruit like recruiting CB1 receptors. Um, some people think that it's forming like functional heterodimers because they're in really close proximity to each other on the, on the cell. Uh, but it's, it, it's hard to know exactly what, what's driving that right now. Um, but if it's able to do that, like prevent the switch of macrophages into a reactive phenotype, that'd be huge because, you know, like that, that'd be great if we could reduce the, uh, the activation of those macrophages because they also will come in like the case of TBI and like make things like worse in the brain. Um, and, and likewise, if we could do that for microglia and astrocytes through that same mechanism, then it's just another another potential avenue by w- which we could see compounds reducing like that chronic inflammatory state and thus improving like um, the potential for functional recovery by like keeping the disorder from like progressing and becoming even worse. Um, and yeah, that that kind of like switching of the macrophage like. Uh, profile is something that our lab is working on through non-psychedelic means, but it's uh, engineering the state of, of, a, of a macrophage using like uh, microparticles. So really cool stuff. What if we put salvinorin A into microparticles? Who knows? But um, 
yeah, uh, that's 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 why that's one of the other reasons why I find Salvinorne to just be like a particularly exciting compound. Um, acute benefits from like preventing ischemia and hypoxia, uh, and then a chronic benefits from being able to reduce inflammation from having some level of uh, psychedelic uh, uh, psychoplastogenic uh, effects. So it also improves plasticity. So hopefully, like Salvinorne to me is, is is really fascinating. That and ketamine together, I think, are like uh, the two that I'm most interested in. Um, in this in this context, uh, but uh, besides that, uh, I'm happy to close off with just saying, you know, that there there is the potential for side effects and risks. You know, um, it doesn't look like right now there's no like smoking gun showing any of this, but just to say that we don't know, and it's a pathology that's complicated and diverse enough that it could be dangerous in some people's cases, but not in others. We just don't know at this point. Um, and so, you know, self-medicate with caution, you know, feel like you're, you know, understand that you're taking a risk, a, a calculated risk in doing it, but that it is a risk nonetheless, uh, rather than assuming that there is no potential for side effects, you know, just go into it knowing that it's a calculated risk is all I have to say. On the note of, um, Salvinorin and CB1 receptors, it's kind of interesting because, I actually suspect that the kind of trippy effects of THC might be mediated by dynorphin release, which uh, has been shown to happen from THC and has also oh. been shown ah. to uh, be what mediates the aversive effects of THC, whereas um, it seems that the euphoric effects uh, depend on the mu opioid receptor stimulation um, through CB1, I'm pretty sure. Um, I know that I'm pretty sure those two are have been found to form adromers or something like that. Um, yeah. I am not exactly sure about heteromers or heterodimers with CB1 and uh, kappa opioid receptors, but I do know that the dynorphin release thing happens and it seems to play a role in what they say is the aversive effects. So like, um, so to me, I, I'm kind of thinking like, this could be like, what makes people kind of freak out, <laughs> you know, like, and maybe yeah. even with good, like, trips, it might be kind of just like a balance between euphoria and maybe like, kind of dysphoric effects at the same time that it kind of it kind of makes it pretty bearable or even exciting or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, that's actually, that's fascinating. I had no idea that there was any, any, any involvement of the opioid system with like, uh, THC. So that, that was, that's actually really interesting. I want to have to like look into that more. Yeah. There's actually links. If you search in the search bar here, there, there should be links. If you type, um, either THC or CB1, um, I can't remember which one, but it definitely will pop up in the list of results. Um, and another thing that's interesting, I don't know if you've actually tried Salvinorin. You don't even have to admit it if you don't want to, but um, <laughs> it, it kind of does feel like, um, well, the effects of like freaking out on THC do kind of seem to be similar to Salvinorin, in my opinion, at least uh, 
and low doses of salvinor and i haven't like taken enough to like how people get those crazy like blast off effects or anything yet but i did like get amnesiac effects everything turned kind of two-dimensional and there mm. was a profound effect on my state of mind and um like i didn't see any like realistic hallucinations though i didn't see like things popping up or anything like that it was more like i kind of uh just i would lose touch with reality it kind of felt like i was dying or something and then everything like like it i in my head it was almost like i was crossing over into a spirit world and like it was as if just i'm observing like reality being kind of twisted into a different uh version of it that's like a lot spookier i don't know but it but it kind of some of the visual effects they do look like what cannabis is like and it had the same kind of dissociation and fear a little bit that i get on thc i don't know have you have you noticed that uh i i mean i've definitely noticed like some that some of that like with thc but since i've never taken my salvinor and i definitely can't like compare to that like what an experience with like that opioid kind of like uh with, with an opioid would be um but yeah no i think it that that to me is a very, is very interesting like way of connecting like the phenomenological like overlap between these two different experiences um yeah that's that's fascinating that's fascinating to hear about yeah it's it's yeah it's a very interesting topic yeah, and I mean, and that that's that's why I'm excited, like, for this kind of like, uh, you know, in vitro work and having like in vitro models. Like, I really, you know, like maybe that's like a you know something I can like look at. You know, like what what are the effects that we see like in these like hippocampal cultures, like with the addition, like the e, like EFIS outcomes, like with just the addition of like dynorphin versus just the addition of salvinorna. Um, which will likely, you know, recruit like the, the, the CB1 agonist. What happens if we block CB1 in these like cultures and look at the EFIS outcomes from that? Um, yeah, there's like, this just makes me think of like so many different questions, so many different things I would want to look at. Um, yeah, like imagine even just like in people, what would it be like if we blocked dynorphin and cannabis users? Like, what if they stop becoming paranoid and it's it's almost like, just something that's like morphine or something weird like that right. like people are just like sedated happy and normal-ish or something i don't know yeah it makes me wonder if like i, I feel like we probably don't have too much on that but like i wonder what the differences between delta 8 and delta 9 are with that because for me i've noticed delta 8 being a very a much more like smooth pleasant unanxiety inducing experience and like in the recent like months i feel like THC has become especially like anxiety inducing. Like it's just easier for me to get like into a parent, a little bit of a paranoid state with it, or just kind of get stuck in my head and start to, you know, just feel a little anxious. But with Delta eight, I feel like I can get what feels like subjectively much more like baked. And it's, you know, like my, just like being like feeling dumb and feeling like silly and goofy (laughs) and all that stuff with like no hint of anxiety and it's very weak, like very weird. And I was like, why, why is that? How's that even like, why is this happening? And so, yeah, it makes me wonder if there's anything having to do with like, just how it recruits, op- like recruits the opioid system. Maybe Delta eight doesn't recruit it, but 
yeah, I don't know. That's that's fascinating. I wonder if looking at that could better discriminate the differences between those two versions of THC. Yeah, I'm curious about that too. I've actually had people recently, all of a sudden people have been asking me about like what the differences might be between those two actually. And I, I don't, I'm not aware that I've tried uh, Delta 8 unless it was given to me, sold as like cannabis or something like sprayed with it or I don't know, like right. something like that. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I don't know if I've tried it, but it sounds like people are liking it. And I've also heard it's legal, I guess, in more places. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's legal. It's like legal almost like everywhere. I think it's supposed to be like 15 states where it's not legal. Like I could go to a smoke shop MPA and grab like a bag of Delta 8 edibles. Like it's crazy. It's so weird because like I feel like <laughs> like that wasn't happening, but it's been legal the whole time and now it's happening. <laughs> like people. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. I and I feel like this is the kind of climate where, you know, maybe I'm being too optimistic of, of, of government, but it's kind of political climate where I feel like adding more uh, drug restrictions is just going to be a bad look. Given like it's not the kind of thing you want to want you want to your constituents think you're prioritizing more drug legislation over like you know addressing like the fallout of COVID or something instead. So I feel like this is going to stay around for a while just because the optics of like trying to pass new drug like anti-drug legislation at this moment um but yeah that's really exciting i you know if we have a schedule one license by the time i'm done with characterizing and developing the the model that i'm building right now it would be really cool to look at delta a versus delta nine i mean that's why i really i'm so excited for this project that i'm doing because once i have the like the slow, boring part is developing the model, making the model something you can work with. And then once it's well characterized and you can work with it, I can ask like so many questions and like the experiments don't take that long to do. Like really, they really just don't take that long to do. It's like a very high throughput. And so I feel like I can bounce around asking like all sorts of different questions with this. Um, I'm particularly excited though to look like use this test, but to discriminate the contributions of astrocytes to the effects. So uh, my, my tissue model, it has hippocampal embryonic neurons and people usually remove astrocytes from these models, be- like from like the tissue cultures because they'll proliferate out of control and they see it as like a contamination. I'm not blocking astrocytes in any way. I'm allowing them to proliferate in these cultures. It doesn't seem to harm the neurons in any way. It seems to actually help them grow better. I'm actually adding in extra astrocytes into my cultures. Uh, that's like the next step is to optimize how many astrocytes in these like tissue cultures is like ideal. Um, because yeah, I want to see like how, how, how much of these, like what are the, the effects of these drugs on neurons versus neurons and astrocytes and what are astrocytes contributing to this? Like if I remove astrocytes or I block some sort of calcium oscillations and astrocytes, like how does that affect the outcome on like neurons? Like are the effects different, noticeably different? Like, uh, I think that's like that's a huge other conversation, and like maybe maybe next time we can talk about astrocytes like super focusedly. But um, yeah, astrocytes are I think the next next big thing, and in, in, you know we're 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 to refer to them like that. But I think appreciating the contribution of astrocytes to cognition and like disease, I think is the next like a next big uh, page in like neuroscience. Um, and uh, by translation, it's going to be a next big thing, and like psychedelics is really 
paying attention to what's happening to these cells um, that are just so important in like function. Yeah, it seems like uh, like stuff like glial cells have been just kind of ignored for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think this is where we could probably wrap it up. Um, or how do you feel about it? Yeah, no, I think this is a great, great, uh, great point to wrap up. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Really enjoyed talking about all this, uh, and hope the audience got to take away some, some good stuff. Uh, I'm hoping to release a, a review article on like novel directions for psychedelic, uh, for psychedelic science, um, sometime this year. So keep your eyes out for that. Uh, hopefully it'll come out this year. And one of the things that it'll touch on is neurotrauma and psychedelics. So really looking forward to that. Hope it encourages people to really look at things in some new and exciting ways. If you have a, a website or a social media that you'd like to plug or both or whatever, um, mm-hmm. uh, you can, well, you can say it right now and also give me the links and I'll totally put them in the description for anyone that wants to check those out. Yeah, I'm in the process of making a prof- like a professional like, Facebook page uh, and actually getting rid of my personal one. But uh, for right now, just uh, feel free to follow me uh, on Twitter, Victor Acero20. It's a splash of science, a splash of politics uh, on there. But uh, yeah, I'd love, to, love for you guys to, to follow me and stay tuned with uh, what I'm up to. Sounds good. So thank you for coming on. This has been a really interesting discussion and some interesting brainstorming too. Um, I will potentially, uh, we could do like different topics in the future if you're up to it. Um, And I would love to get you as a guest again. Um, And I think that that is pretty much it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I definitely would be down to come back and talk in the future. Uh, lots of lots of things I'm really interested about. Maybe hopefully in the future I'll have some more stuff on my specific project to share. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Th- thank you so much. Yes.